biting the hand that refuses to feed us since 1996. This is hell. The first time I had a problem crossing the border, I know I, know I was underage because the whole point of crossing the border was to go to Canada, buy a whole bunch of beer cheap and bring it back. I knew a lot of people from the neighborhood who had done it. In fact, one of the very first times I got drunk, or as our Canadian neighbors to the north say, hammered, was drinking Canadian beer that had been sneaked through customs. But I wasn't living in East Detroit, just outside Detroit, and a short drive to Windsor, Ontario anymore. Now I was living 100 miles away in another eastward town, East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University, a school rumors suggest that I was apparently attending at the time, but I don't have any clear records to back up that allegation. Getting high 100 miles from the border is probably not the best way or time to decide to buy beers illegally and bring them back to the States. But it's definitely the worst time to make and then execute whatever decisions you had made. And the plans were set. Already high as hell, we would load up a friend's car with us, a whole bunch of weed, and hotbox it for an hour and a half as we sped down I-94 to our destiny, to our fate. I had a huge crush on the woman who was driving the car, the only person we knew who owned a reliable car. Now, I probably shouldn't say her name or that of her cousins, who was her roommate, but they were such spectacular names, I can't help myself. I was even going to slightly change them to protect the innocent. But screw that, these names gotta be shared. The driver, who I had a huge crush on, had the beautiful, beautiful name of Belinda Shafarsik. Yes, nothing really says beauty like a Germanic last name, with something as close as you can get to Broomhilda before it. Her cousin had the even more German and sexy name, of Helga Strunk. So there were six of us, I think. Maybe seven, maybe eight. I can't really quite remember. And we all piled into Belinda's mid-70s Chevrolet Chevelle, a Detroit muscle car that was made to go very, very fast. I vaguely remember having a great time on the ride there. Uh, one of the other passengers, a friend from my old neighborhood in East Detroit, who was also going to Michigan State, a school he decided to attend despite getting a perfect ACT score, a perfect SAT score, whatever other standardized test he ever took. He had told us about how he had made the Canada beer run with his older brothers. I knew they had success because the outcome of one of those runs was me drinking that delicious Labatt's Special 50 and their exceptional extra stock. Two beers, I have no idea if they actually exist today or not. And getting drunk for the very first time on Canadian beer. From that whole thing going across the border and all those people taking those beers and bringing them to me. Because I had a crush on the driver, I was in the front passenger seat because my friend had made the run before. He was in the back seat, leaning his head forward between our seats, so he was barking orders, instructions on what to do as we approached the border. First, to roll down the windows when we get about five minutes away to air out all the weed smoke from the car. Then be polite at the border. Let the driver do all the talking. Otherwise, don't speak unless spoken to. Be friendly and everybody smile. As we roll slowly toward the armed border agent, the backseat genius says, if they tell you to pull over and park, they'll search the car. If not, we've made it. I remember pulling up Belinda being incredibly sweet, telling the border guard that we were going to Canada to, to drink, and the guard laughed and let us through. It was that easy. This is where my memory is even more hazy, because I swear we ended up at a strip club. I remember Belinda kind of harassing me, saying stuff like, Hey, Chuck, do you think that that stripper is hot? And a vague memory of a stripper wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Being in Canada and a stripper wearing a hockey jersey was too much. I, I couldn't stop laughing. 
I neither left on my own volition or was asked to excuse myself or was thrown out violently. I don't remember, but I did check with the genius, and he told me that, yes, we did go to a strip club, and yes, there was actually a stripper wearing a Leafs jersey. We went to the Brewers Retail, which is the name of the government-run beer stores in Canada. I looked at the beers, single bottles of which were in a showcase, and then when you get to the cashier, you tell them which ones you want, how much of each, and then, like magic, they come out on this conveyor belt from some mysterious room that I could only imagine was some kind of beer paradise. We loaded up the massive trunk of the Chevelle and headed back to the border and home. As soon as we got in the car, the pot smoking began again in earnest, and yes, of course... It was making all of these 19 and 20 year olds get incredibly paranoid. So, of course, when we get to the border, we're freaking out, nervous, anxious, hoping we don't get busted. On the Canadian side, the crossing agent laughed at us. He quickly waved us through and just said, Good luck. We were in the clear. We were going to make it back to East Lansing and we were going to celebrate as heroes who had returned with their plundered riches. But then we had to go through U.S. Customs. They told us to pull over just as our friend had told us they would. We were then marched in one by one to a holding area. I looked back to watch the others in the back seat being escorted out. That's when I saw one of the back seaters step out with a three-foot-tall bong. I have no idea how I missed it the entire time, the entire ride, but this freak had brought with him a three-foot-tall bong. Remember asking him, where the fuck did that come from? And he told me they had been smoking from it the entire time, but you can't pass a three-foot-tall bong into the front seat. We were then taken to a waiting room, and one by one, again, we were brought up to a desk and asked if we were carrying any guns or drugs or anything illegal. Besides the six cases of beer they were already taking from the car and putting in their evidence locker, I watched each of these cases go by, counting them, thinking maybe they'd leave one behind. One of the backseaters admitted to having some weed on her and pulled what amounted to less than a dime bag out of her pocket. They checked to see if any of us had records at the border. None of us did. We were uncertain what they were going to do, and we sat in this waiting room for what seemed like forever as we awaited their decision on what to do with us, and it was incredibly, blindingly bright, like a 7-Eleven at 2 in the morning. Fluorescent brightness. It was giving me a massive headache and sobering me up quickly. So we thought we might get a fine. We might get held overnight. We might have to get our parents to come to the border to bail us out. We had no idea what they were going to do, and as we became increasingly sober from that fluorescent lighting that was just awful, we became increasingly worried about our future. We could not figure out what was taking so long until the genius looked outside and pointed out what they were doing to the car. They had taken out the back seat and thrown everything that was in the car out in the parking lot. It was strewn all over the place. We watched until it appeared they had finished as they were kindly reinstalling the back seat. The officer asked us to come to the desk again, one by one, again. He told us we had to sign a form saying we had voluntarily given up the contraband. I asked, so what happens with this form? He told me, well, I wouldn't try to get a job with customs. Being concerned about my future employment opportunities, apparently, I didn't sign my real name. But in that split second when I decided not to write my real name, I figured it had to look similar. So instead of writing Charles Mertz, I wrote the first name that popped in my head. It started with the letter, the letters C and M. The name I came up with was Chester Morgan. And I want to apologize to any Chester Morgan who cannot get a job with U.S. Customs. And I have no idea who Chester Morgan is. And now that I'm saying it over and over again, I kind of want to go to Google and look up Chester Morgan to see who he is. How the hell did I get that name in my head? We thought our nightmare was over, and then we were told there was a fine. 
I can't remember how much it was, but we didn't have that kind of money. We had spent it all on beer and maybe at the strip club. When we explained we were short on cash, the agent asked how much we had, whatever it was, say $49.32. We were suddenly told by the agent that today, as a special, that was exactly the fine. We were free to go. As we were leaving the customs building, one of the agents said, we're going to party tonight, which led to angry discussions on the way home about how those cops were smoking our weed and drinking our beer. took me several years to realize the agent was simply trolling us, provoking us, making us think that's what they were doing to make us even more mad, more angry on the 100-mile drive home. We walked toward the car, seeing some of our stuff still laying in the parking lot from their very messy search, including the genius's backpack, which was laying some 10 feet from the car as if it had just been tossed aside. Once back in the car, the genius told everybody to shut up, don't say a word, and drive away slowly. We looked back at the crossing guards who were laughing and saying, thanks for the beer. All the genius kept saying was, just look straight forward and drive. We could hear some rustling in the back seat. He kept saying, did they find it? And is it still in here? Kept digging and digging, and suddenly... In that completely silent, very angry car, he screamed with sheer joy, saying, Yes, they didn't find my weed. Hidden in one of the backpack's many compartments. A backpack he got purposely because it had so many confusing compartments, and at times he couldn't find his own keys. Deep in one of those compartments was an entire ounce of marijuana, and an entire ounce none of us were aware he had been holding up until that moment. So I told Belinda to pull over. I went off. I was yelling at this genius for bringing so much weed which was totally unnecessary i wanted to throttle the doofus who brought a three-foot bong and we didn't have any beer i looked at the genius and i said now you better get us fucking high as hell the entire ride home or i'm going to fucking kill you he then said hey pointing at belinda she's the one with a bumper sticker on her car that says pot smokers have bigger joints I looked at Belinda with disbelief, checked out the bumper, couldn't believe my eyes, got back in the car, and the genius started rolling fat joints. It was a very quiet, angry ride home. The backseaters eventually fell asleep, and Belinda and I didn't say a word, just passing joint after joint back and forth, looking into the darkness on the expressway. And I know I was thinking, this is how... The second time I had problems at the U.S.-Canada border, I was in my early 20s and doing a lot of drugs, so I cannot remember exactly how old I was or when this happened. I remember I was still living in Michigan, and I know I was taking the train to visit an old college friend who had moved to Toronto, Ontario. I was going to T.O. to, among other things, hang out with my friend. We were also going to hang out with Echo and the Bunnymen and float in a sensory deprivation tank for the first time. Not with Echo and the Bunnymen. We're going to do all that separately. My friend in Toronto could get weed, but he couldn't get anything else. And the weed he was getting was really bad, despite being from Jamaicans, which revealed to me exactly how racist I truly was and likely still am. Yes, Jamaicans can get you really bad weed, too. All this meant if we were going to a show and we are planning on floating in Toronto, drugs would be needed. I skateboarded all over town that week, picking up acid from one person, mushrooms from another, different kinds of weed here and there. And I had what I needed for a trip across the northern border. Friends who were far more experienced than me, including my partner in crime at the time, they told me I was an idiot and that drugs could be found in T.O., but I wouldn't hear any of it. 
They also told me that Amtrak is very weed-friendly. You can smoke pot between cars and in bathrooms, and none of the workers care because they all get high, too. At least that was the story that was going around Stonerville, at least. But crossing the border with weed, acid, and mushrooms, my friend told me that was dumb. However, if I was going, I was told don't bring any lighters or paraphernalia of any kind. Don't bring any papers. Don't bring any... Any weed I had should be rolled into joints, then wrapped up in a series of bags, and everything, everything should be crotched or shoved up my ass. Not in your socks or shoes. They can roll up your pant leg and pull down your socks, but they cannot strip you until they find drugs on you in some other way. He also told me to wear my best clothes and try to look as straight as possible. The only nice clothes I owned consisted of a pair of black dress pants and a green long-sleeve button-up dress shirt that were out of fashion when my mom gave them to me for Christmas five years earlier, and I'd grown during that time. The shirt still fit. The pants did not. I was also wearing old church shoes, and I hadn't been in a church since I got those now poorly fitting and now far too short pants. I packed all my stuff in my dad's old army duffel bag, my only luggage I owned, which had lots of tears and holes in it. As I was getting high while packing, I got paranoid about being busted and decided to throw off anyone who would search my stuff. First, I threw in a collapsible white cane that I was given when I was a student for two weeks at the Michigan Rehabilitation Center for the Blind. I looked around my room for something else, and everything else I owned seemed to be incriminating. I was living in an illegal apartment in the basement of a house that was owned by a born-again Christian. He lived in the attic of the house, which he had converted into a gigantic and stunning apartment. My place in the basement was one of two illegal apartments down there. We knew that if there was a fire, our best chance at survival was breaking a basement window and crawling out as the narrow and steep basement stairs were right next to the old furnace that we figured would blow at any time. The Christian landlord was in the midst of doing something to his place up in the attic, so he had stored his books and bookshelves in the basement outside my door. I perused his titles, see if something might lead to custom agents ending a search of my stuff, and there it was. The perfect thing to steal, I mean borrow, from my landlord to possibly cause border guards to give up looking for my drugs. Yes, it was the Holy Bible. I threw the Bible in with the rest of my stuff, and the next day got, got up dressed packed everything, including my drugs, crotched them, and I suddenly realized I was taking so many drugs, there was no way I was going to be able to get away with taking that much in my underwear. So I buried them in the bottom of my duffel bag and nervously hoped for the best because there was no way I was going to leave any of my shit behind. It was too hard in collecting all of that contraband. While waiting at the train station, I was trying to think of anything else that would make me look like I am not caring. Saw a newsstand and looked for what was the most conservative publication I could find that I would actually not mind reading. So I bought a Wall Street Journal. When I finally got on the train, I looked for the person who, by all appearances, was the most innocent, the least likely to carry drugs, who was alone by themselves, not a family, someone I could strike up in a conversation. And there she was, right by the bathroom door, a woman in her 80s, as in possibly born in the 1880s, wearing a dress that screamed Sunday best. I sat across the aisle from her, but one row back. I didn't want to talk to her the whole way. I just wanted to get friendly enough so everyone on the train could see that I was a nice guy who was being friendly to an old lady. Yeah, I was kind of a screaming prick back then. 
Look, when you are in the business, you are on edge with nerves pulled tight and being high at the same time does not help that paranoia. We exchanged pleasantries, the old lady and I, and she said I was a very nice young man and went about her reading or knitting or whatever old people do in my memories when they're busy not talking to me. Her presence actually called me to the point that I got bored. Then I remembered I was breaking the law. And I suddenly wasn't bored anymore, and I got nervous again, especially as we were approaching the Canadian border. I decided to walk the length of the train in my very uncomfortable church shoes to maybe get rid of some of those nerves. There were a couple empty cars, other cars were completely full. In one I saw a family playing, and another some dude sitting by himself looking suspicious as if he was up to something. I walked to the end of the train, looked out the rear window for a bit, then headed back to my seat. This time the suspicious guy was gone. But in the next car, the family was still hanging out, playing all by themselves. I was leaving the family car, sliding the door open to pass through the next car. That's when I was immediately hit by the stench of really good pot. I stopped, quickly slid the door closed behind me, and saw my suspicious friend off to the side by an exit door getting high. He invited me. I asked if it was cool. He told me all Amtrak workers were stoners. My crime partner's story was true, so I figured... Everything else must have been true, too, and I was free and in the clear. All of my prep work was going to work out perfectly. We smoked up with no worries. A couple of Amtrak conductors, I guess, I don't know, they had those kinds of uniforms on, came through, said, hey, how are you guys doing, smiled, and moved along. I couldn't believe it. It was true. Amtrak was Weed Track, not only the place that distributes so much pot throughout the Great Lakes area, but all the people who work on the train... They're cool, too. My new friend said as we were getting close to the border, we shouldn't sit in the same car or even near each other, and he would come by and tap me the next time he was going to smoke up. I was thinking, this is great. I'm stoned. The Amtrak dudes are not narcs. I'm headed to see one of my very best friends in Toronto for what will be an amazing weekend. And I also heard his sister was very hot. As we slowed at the border, crossing into Canada... I think they have to change the gauge of the train or something, different widths of tracks. I don't know. We eventually came to a full stop. Some sort of work seemed to be happening outside the train, and I saw a couple of those guys in conductor's uniforms or whatever they, whatever those outfits were. They were directly outside my train window. They were talking with a couple of people in what looked like police uniforms, probably just chatting, work friends, you know. Suddenly, two of the conductors, or whatever their jobs, pointed at me, right at me, right through the glass, directly at me. And the two police officers looked. I knew I had to get rid of my shit, and I only had a few seconds. I grabbed my duffel bag from the overhead, looked up and down the aisle to see if anyone could see what I was doing. I unzipped it, rifled through my bag in a panic, because the drug bag, of course, had shifted and moved around the duffel as I threw it in the overhead. With my drugs finally found and in hand as the cops were getting onto the train, I had no idea what I was going to do. Throw it under my seat? No, lift my seat. What? Wait, do these seats lift? I pulled hard and I heard Velcro tearing. And I knew I could lift the seat, but I figured but I figured this out. So I figured that the border guards likely have two. That's when the little old lady, who was sitting across the aisle from me, got up and headed toward the bathroom. I quickly leaned across the aisle, lifted her seat, and stashed my stash. Then I quickly leaned back, opened up the Wall Street Journal for the first time, and started to pretend I was reading. I could hear and feel the agents getting closer and closer to me, getting closer and closer to my seat. It seemed like forever. They said something to me like, how are you doing today? 
I lowered the paper and didn't know what to say. I completely was at a loss of words. That's when I saw the old woman slowly exiting the bathroom and carefully walking down the aisle toward me and the cops. I pointed her out to them. They stepped aside, being polite with all the excuse me's necessary, and she sat back down on my acid, on my mushrooms, on my weed. And now that I think about it, there was some really good black Iranian hash, too. That's when the cops, customs agents, border guards, whatever you want to call this kind of police, asked me to open my bag. I I put the journal aside, unzipped, and the first thing they saw was the white cane. They looked at me, (laughs) and I explained that I was legally blind, and I showed my Michigan State ID, which actually used to state your disability on your ID. They really... They realized later that was kind of discriminatory, I guess. But that didn't stop them. They dug deeper into the bag, and despite the fact that I knew there were no drugs in there, I got increasingly nervous, and I was certain they could tell. That's when they found the Bible, looked at me with what appeared to be complete disgust, and said, okay, where's the drugs? I saw the old woman look over her shoulder. She heard it too, and I said, while making eye contact with her, and not the cops. What drugs? As if I was disappointing her, which was suddenly more important to me than not being busted for smuggling drugs across an international border. The cubs gave me my stuff back, didn't say another word, walked away, and got off the train. We were on our way to Toronto. Now all that had to happen is that little old lady had to get up at some point before Toronto so I could get my shit back. I figured she was old and would need to use the bathroom at some point, but I didn't want to make take any chances. Maybe she's getting out earlier. Maybe she's getting out in Hamilton. I don't know. So I asked her, so how far are you going? And unfortunately, she replied, all the way to Toronto. That's when my stoner friend came by and tapped me on the shoulder again. We went between cars, got high again, and I told him what had happened. I asked where he had stashed his stuff, and he said he didn't. Suddenly, I realized he wasn't dressed up. He didn't have a Wall Street Journal. I seriously doubt he had a white cane or a Bible. So I asked, what the fuck? Why didn't you get busted? And he said he had heard that Customs had a list of ten traits to look for in a possible drug dealer. If you fulfilled a few of the criteria, they would pull you over and search. However, if you did not match any of the criteria, they searched, figuring it was just a bit too suspicious. I had no idea if that was true. But who are you going to learn about smuggling drugs from? I figured a successful drug smuggler was a good place to start. We returned to our seats, and I waited and waited and waited for the old woman to get out of her seat. At worst, I would have to go over to her seat while the train is stopped and everyone is standing and getting off. I'll have to. I'll be forced to lift her seat and brazenly grab my big bag of drugs. The wait was interminable. Should I ask her if she would like a glass of water or a cup of tea? I was getting the courage to do just that when suddenly she stood up, shuffled to the bathroom, I quickly got up, jumped across the aisle, sat down in the seat next to hers, pretending to be looking out the window, turned, lifted the seat, pulled the Velcro open, snatched my stash, put it under my shirt, and leaped back across the aisle and into my seat. Threw my drugs back in the duffel, put it up in the overhead, and sat down relieved. We had a great weekend in Toronto. It's one of the most memorable times of my life. And keep in mind, we did a lot of drugs, which either says the drugs weren't that great or that I usually ingest even more drugs than that, so I have a relatively clear memory, which is frightening. Or it was such a great time, it cut through the haze, even working with it and leaving me with feelings of sheer joy whenever I think of that visit. But when I was having my shit searched, when the only thing between me and prison was a 
68-pound woman, probably in her late 80s, I was thinking, this is hell. And now the last two times I crossed the U.S. border into Canada while illegally carrying recreational substances that, for whatever reason, governments of both nations have restricted, regulated, and limited legally, even, dare I say, criminally. That said, if you're going to go see Koyana Scotsi performed live, the, the movie that features music by Philip Glass, if you're going to go see that performed by Philip Glass live at Avery Fisher Hall in New York City, and then go see Cabaret Voltaire at the Ritz, you're not going to truly appreciate those shows without really, really good drugs. I mean, sure, you could still have a good time listening to the music and watching the performance, but for me, watching footage of the world's destruction accompanied by nothing but live metronomic piano playing, followed by the next day seeing pioneers of industrial music in a Dada-inspired show featuring horrific scenes being projected upon them, including a loop of John Hinckley Jr. shooting Ronald Reagan over and over and over again. For me, watching all of that, I'm going to need something to cut the edge off. So, friends of mine and I loaded into a car to head directly to the Philip Glass show, get there just in time for when the doors open, then crash at a friend's place in the South Bronx, get up the next day, check out Manhattan, then head to the Ritz, crash again, and go directly back home to Michigan. It's all going to be a big flurry of activity in about a 36-hour span. As we were going down the road, passing joints, celebrating that we were on our way, riding in a friend's crappy Fiat, and not just any crappy Fiat, but the crappy Fiat that became the Yugo, which was a crappy Soviet blockish car produced by a former Fiat plant in the former Yugoslavia. Everything about this car was former. The driver suddenly realized that there wasn't enough time to drive south through Toledo, east through Pennsylvania, and then onto New York City. That if we wanted to make the show, we were going to have to cut through... Canada. I explained how this is an issue with me as I had a record on the bo- at the border, or at least someone named Chester Morgan did, as the first time I was being busted I signed forms with that name instead of mine because I am some kind of criminal genius apparently. I also noted to our riding companions that we had been blazing for the first hour of the trip and I seriously doubt we can get the months of pot odor that had been sucked up into the car's upholstery out of the car before we reached the border. The fanboy driving, who was and still is an audiophile of the utmost degree. I mean, huge fanboy. Like, knows everyone from Pete Townsend to Robin Hitchcock to Pussy Riot. He hangs out with Pussy Riot. He insisted we gotta go through Canada if we want to make the show. I quickly agreed because the Philip Glass and Cabaret Voltaire tickets were a major investment for me at the time, leaving me pretty much penniless. And I didn't want to miss the show either, so I told everyone, roll down the windows, air out the car, and you gotta crotch everything. I don't care if it's a bowl or freaking papers, a dugout, whatever you have, crotch it or shove it up your ass. Now, the two guys in the front seats, I knew them. They were really good friends of mine. But the guy next to me in the back, he was a friend of theirs who I didn't know. This tall, lanky, quiet, pale dude with a geometric haircut, very long on one side and buzz cut on the other, wearing a black trench coat right out of the horrible movie made from the great book, The Basketball Diaries. This guy, I didn't know. I'd met him a few times, but he never said anything. All he did was throw his long side of his hair around in this super dramatic, flipping way. It was really pretentious and annoying until you realize he was likely more annoyed by his hair than everyone else was. 
I can't even remember his name. Back then, I couldn't remember his name. Every time I, I would have to ask someone to remind me because he was so not memorable. However, there's one thing I do remember about that idiot. I remember seeing him tuck a pack of rolling papers into his backpack. I immediately told him, dude, crotch it. No papers, nothing. We can't have anything on us. He took the papers back out without saying a word, and I looked ahead as the border was quickly approaching. At the border, the crossing guard waited as we slowly rolled up. The moment, the second we were within range of actually being able to hear the guard, the first words were, Okay, pull over and park over there, pointing to the parking spots next to the customs office. Yep, we were that obvious. They asked us to step out of the car, but they did not say go inside and wait for us. So I thought we still had a chance of getting out of this without any problems. One agent asked the driver where we were going. He told them to visit a friend in New York City. Why didn't you go through Toledo instead, he asked. I told him it was because we were trying to make a show at 8 o'clock. That was stupid. The other agent opened the car and looked in the ashtrays, the glove box, under the seats, in the visors. But he didn't pop the trunk, which I thought was weird, as that's where all our luggage was, except for haircut trench coat, trench coat boy's backpack. That's when the agent opened the backpack, and there they were, right on top. Haircut had put his freaking rolling papers back in his bag. He hadn't crotched them like we all told him to do. I thought we were doomed. I had a record at the border, or at least Chester Morgan did. Panicking, I figured they had likely seen through my alias. After all, I do remember them taking information off my state ID, so I seriously doubt that Chester Morgan business threw anyone off. But wait, that was on the U.S. side of the border, with U.S. customs. This time it was the Canadian side that stopped me. Hmm, maybe I would have a different outcome. I, but then I thought, we're done for. We're going to jail. I had joints, dozens of joints. Joints all called Opie Dopey. With opium, hash, pot mixed with THC extract dripped on top and these beautiful papers we used for the special occasion that had these white flowers printed on them. There were other drugs down there too. I know there was acid with Betty Boop on the tabs and other stuff, but I can't remember exactly what else I was holding. I was cal calculating how much time I could do in jail and wondering if Canada's jails were any better than U.S. jails. The four of us were marched to a counter where we were asked if we had anything on us that was illegal or some such question. We all said no. They couldn't hear Haircut Boy and had to get him to speak up, which was the first time I think I ever heard Haircut Boy's voice. And then Arx replied to our, all of our denials with cold stares, stink eyes, and a solemn hand gesture. Please follow the officer, who was holding open a thick steel door with a small bulletproof glass window. We entered into an area that appeared as sterile as a doctor's office, but with dimmer lighting. Through all these white corridors, we were led to another secure door, like the first, and into a room where the four of us could comfortably sit and sat on two cold concrete slab benches, sitting across from one another when the guard closed the heavy door and locked us inside. I turned to Haircut and I said, Dude, I said dude a lot back then, Dude, why the fuck did you have papers on you when you were going across the border? Of course, he didn't know what to say. That's when one of the others tried to stick up for him, saying something that was about to reveal we all had drugs on us. I don't remember what it was about that moment, but suddenly I was convinced that cops were probably listening in on us, trying to find out if we were going to crack, trying to find out if we were going to spill any information that we didn't want to. 
Now, I have no idea if they were or not, but I suddenly said in a very menacing but quiet tone, Everybody shut the fuck up and do not say another fucking word to anyone else until we're back in the fucking car on our way to fucking New York City. Less than a minute later, one of the guards came in and took away haircut. A few minutes of silence later, they took away the driver and shortly after the other guy from the front seat, leaving only me. Then it was my turn, leaving the room completely empty. I was walked down a hallway to another room, but the door at this room wasn't as secure, more like an exam room's door because... That's what it was, an examination room, as in that examination of one of the two places where you can smuggle drugs on your person even when naked. There was an exam table and someone dressed as a doctor waiting for me. He told me to sit on the table and asked again if I was carrying and again I said no. That's when he put on medical gloves in this most menacing of ways. I was prepared for the worst, but he instead asked that I roll up my pant legs. He didn't roll up my pant legs. He asked me to roll up my pant legs. He then bent down and he took his medical glove-covered hands and patted down my socks. He had me repeat the process with the other pant leg. But again, he never rolled down either sock. Although I wasn't holding in my socks, he never even rolled down my socks. He just patted them down. He asked me to take off my shoes, which he searched, but he didn't take off my shoes. He had me empty my pockets, but he never had me take off my pants and never, ever grabbed me where everything was, in my crotch. I was pretty sure I had tucked my stash so so well that there was a chance it might not be noticed, but I wasn't certain. I even considered, at that moment, obscuring my package of drugs by getting an erection and maybe my package might hide my other package. The cop told me to put my shoes back on, roll down my pant legs, and while I was doing all that, he was saying how it would be easier on me if I admitted to it and that my friends had already rolled on me anyway so we could st- he could strip search me if he wanted to and even do a cavity search. It was threat after threat after threat like this. It, and with nervous speed, all I was doing was putting my shoes back on as fast as possible. Something happened. I don't know what. I don't know if it was because I was high, because I was nervous, because I was scared, because I was angry, because I just didn't give a shit anymore. Maybe it was because I had gotten away with crossing the U.S.-Canada border with drugs twice before. But I suddenly had some odd assuredness and blurted out, You didn't didn't find anything on anyone, on any of us. So you can't strip me, you can't strip search anybody without knowing at all if that was the case, and I don't know if it was to this day. That's when Dr. Cobb yelled at me to get out and called another officer to escort me out. We went back to the holding cell where all four of us were sitting on those concrete slab benches before they had taken us out separately. The door opened, there they were, the other three, and as I sat down, they all leaned over and whispered to me that they were told I'd rolled on all of them. Pretty clever, right? Get us all to be at each other's throats, blaming each of us, and maybe one of us will roll on the rest. I was kind of surprised it didn't work on haircut. I told my co-travelers how the cops said the same thing to me about them, and that's just how it works, so again, shut the fuck up. What seemed like mere seconds later, the steel door swung open, and we were asked to exit the cell. We were taken back out through the final secure door and were back at the counter. They asked us again, do you have anything illegal in your car? We all said no, again, and they gave us all our IDs back, one at a time, staring into the eyes of each of us as we received our IDs. 
The cop then held the car keys, dangling them out of the driver's reach, and said, You have exactly four hours to get to the Buffalo border crossing, and if you don't go through the crossing in Buffalo in exactly four hours, and if you try to leave the country through any other border crossing, an international warrant will be put out for your arrest on suspicion of drug trafficking. I have no idea if there's such a thing. I still don't know. I have no clue. The driver slowly reached out for the keys as the cop slowly handed them to him. We walked as coolly as we could to the car, but I'm certain it was not cool in any way as we were all likely trying not to crap our pants. We got back into the car, drove away slowly, did not look back, and headed across Ontario straight for the crossing at Buffalo back into the U.S. We couldn't spend the speed, but time was of the essence. Speeding could mean being pulled over by oppers, Ontario Provincial Police. And we didn't want that. Also, this crappy Fiat had trouble doing the speed limit, let alone the minimum speed. We didn't stop for gas the whole way. No food, no ping, nothing. We were stoic and focused on getting to Buffalo in four hours exactly. Although in retrospect, we probably weren't going to be held that much of an exactitude. We got to the border half hour early. We were so freaked out by the experience. We went to a park <laughs> near the border and sat around and stared, doing nothing, saying nothing, just waiting so we would get to the border at the exact time without causing any suspicion. Although in retrospect, getting there right on time was probably kind of suspicious. We slowly pulled up to the border again. The agents seemed to be waiting for us, and they were. We were told that we had made it just in time and that we could go through, no search, no nothing, and we headed for New York City, free and clear with all our drugs intact. And we sparked up and fast. Before we got to the Philip Glass show, I think we went through half the joints I crotched. We dropped acid, watched Koyaanisqatsi on a huge screen with glass playing, okay, to the movie live. At the end, everyone participated in a stoic, a stoic, participated in a standing ovation, except for one guy who stayed in his seat and just sat there saying, boo, boo, boo. Very matter-of-factly, boo, Boo! It was the greatest booing I've ever heard in my life. We met a friend's brother who lived with a pharmacist who told us working in a pharmacy was like a kid working in a candy store. We did liquid cocaine all night. We fell asleep on the subway, walked down Wall Street, smoking hand-rolled Cuban cigars while barefoot, went to the Cabaret Voltaire show, saw Madonna there and Lydia Lunch and Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and tons of New York celebrities at the time. There was at least one guy who looked exactly like Tom Verlaine, went back and crashed at our friend's house, woke up, went to get back in the car and head home when we realized... It had been broken into and the stereo was gone, but it was right there for sale at the corner. But we didn't have the money to buy it back, and the guy was not offering us a deal despite it formally being our stereo. It was now his stereo, and it was a nice stereo. So we piled back in the car without a stereo, with limited drugs, no tunes, and headed back home this time through Pennsylvania and Toledo, avoiding the shorter and far more stressful Canadian route. Now, the fourth and final time I had excitement with drugs at the border, a friend of mine and I had decided to take the bus to Detroit, get a ride from my brother, who looked very straight to the Windsor, Ontario side of the Detroit border, and drop us off on the train there, because it was significantly cheaper, so my mother insisted upon it. But I'm not a dick. I decided it was not a good idea to take drugs with my completely clean brother driving. So the three of us, my brother, my friend, and I, were getting in the car when my mom comes running out of the house and informs us that she is going to be joining us for the ride. I didn't care. I didn't have any drugs on me. 
the second my friend and I get in the back seat, he leans over to me and says, Hey, I have an ounce of shrooms on me. My nerves were a wreck again. There I was in that same stupid situation. All I could do was stare at the back of my mom's headrest, trying to figure out what I was going to say to her when we got busted. But nothing happened. They waved us through on both sides. Everyone smiled. My mom giggled. My friend played along perfectly, and we were taken to the train and headed again to see the friend in Toronto, who I visited the second time I had problems at the border. I know the last one wasn't very eventful, but it was pretty scary when that freak told me he had an ounce of shrooms on him. But I'm never doing that again. Never taking drugs across any border again. I mean, state borders, sure. But international borders, never again. Because every time I did, I told myself, this is hell.